you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, welcome everyone to the Chasing Giants podcast, episode 150 with Don Higgins, who I might mention is the most politically correct person in the hunting industry this week. And I'm Terry Peer. We got him laughing as we already start. Um, so, <laughs> boy, I get you wound up right out of the gate. But uh, it's uh, in between. People are going to be watching this on New Year's Day. So happy New Year's, everyone. Um, how was your Christmas, Don? Great Christmas. Yeah, we celebrated actually on Christmas Eve. But... Uh, I had a great time with the family, and then uh, my son-in-law stayed, uh, or he came back. He went home for Christmas Day, um, and, and then came back the day after and was here hunting with a buddy of his for a few days. So I was on the consulting trail most of the week, so uh, I didn't get to hunt much, but uh, I got uh, four consulting jobs uh, taken care of and a lot of time in front of the computer doing those plans, so... I'm ready for a little break here. Got one more tomorrow morning, and then I'm taking a break for about three or four days. Yeah, I've also been consulting the last couple of days. Um, I tell you what, I can't you I can't say it any better than you did. The best part of doing this is meeting the people and seeing where they're trying to basically duplicate their dream hunting property with their own conditions and. We see all different kinds of people, different skill sets, different topography, different properties. And it's it's almost like putting a fresh puzzle together every single time we work with someone. Yeah, and you always leave with a new friend, too. That's what I like about it is uh, just meet fantastic people and uh, you're helping them chase their dream, but you're leaving with a friend. And I can't tell you how many texts and calls and emails I get every day from former clients and just value them more than than they ever realized probably um they're making our dreams come true but as we're helping them make their dreams come true you know i really like the fact that we can work with people that all have different goals and objectives you know today i was on a property where a family actually uses a portion of the property is a little campsite in the summer that they go and play in the, you know, enjoy the river, camp out at it. But then the majority of the property is used only for hunting. A property two days ago was all exclusively hunting. I don't know that he even takes his wife there, period. It's just, it's really neat to see people at different phases of their hunting career and also different objectives of the property. And, you know, one day we might be helping someone understand how to hunt more than the habitat side. And then another time we might be a new type habitat that the hunter might not be real familiar with and helping them with that. It's, it's, um, it's just a real fun challenge every week to, to work with people. And it's, it's almost like we become just bigger, a bigger family every single visit. Right. 
and every property is different. Every client's different. And, uh, it's just interesting each day. You really, when you pull up to the client's uh, property, their home, whatever, you never are really a hundred percent sure what to expect. And, uh, you've, you know, we always look at the property ahead of time on Onyx or, um, you know, whatever to get a good feel for it. But until you step foot on it and, and shake hands with the client and spend a, you know, the first hour or so with them, you're, you're really not sure what you're getting into, but I always leave feeling good. I always leave feeling like I've just made a new friend and I've helped somebody at the same time. Well, the last two days have been a, uh, what's the right terminology. It's been just validation that there is no way I could have even come close to putting plans together that I'm working on now by looking at a topo. When you get in Mm -hmm. even, even a topo in hill country, to see benches and saddles and understand how deer are moving, there is no way that the the strategies that I'm helping with some of these um, these clients could have ever been a uh, even even not only with the topo but the conversations we're having while walking around with the client. It's just it's just not possible. So, but I want to tell you, I got my steps in, and I've been on some steep ground the last two days. I mean, steep mm. ground. So wow. I, I need, I need one of them Illinois properties here tomorrow just to get a little bit flatter. Yeah. Those hills aren't any fun and the older you get, the worse they get. So it doesn't get any better from here. All right. Well, we got a, we got a good show today, but because so many questions have come in and it's new years, um, we want to focus on a lot of questions, uh, that have come in. So we're going to try to get six or seven questions done today. We're going to see how timing goes. Before we get going, any new New Year's resolutions for you before we start? You're not big on New Year's resolutions, but... No, I'm not, but this would be probably a good year to have one. I'm going to have to uh, find a social media coordinator to do handle my social media because it, it's been a, uh, a rough week of attacks. <laughs> Some days I handle it way better than others, but, uh, I've just got to, I got so many positive things going. I just can't let them people drag me down. And, you know, most of the time, like this week, it wasn't even deer hunters. It wasn't even people in the hunting industry whatsoever. It was a bunch of radical environmentalists. They were doing everything they could to rattle my cage and I fired back at them just a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, I've blocked, I, I literally blocked over 200 people. In, in two days and deleted their comments and it but was those just 200 people job. weren't even friends of yours i mean they're not even people who follow your page they were just know, people driven there to stir the crap and uh yeah it's it's amazing how that stuff always comes in waves right around miscanthus time but we're going to keep it positive and talk about education and and the product itself to reassure people that it is what we say it is. We got a couple questions on it today. We're going to focus on, but yeah, I knew it was a rough week for you. So that, that's my new year's resolution is to uh, spend less time on social media. I just need to make my post for the day and then stay away for the rest of the day because, uh, there are people out there, I guess, with nothing better to do than to cause grief for others. And I, I just, I got enough positive stuff going on. I don't need to, to deal with it. The one thing that now that you're so good of friends with all of these environmentalists and tree huggers, you know, you're, you're pretty tight with all these people. Now they, they're really watching what you're doing. I have a question for you to ask them. 
So I walked this property today and we went in some thick, nasty stuff. And of course it was warm. So all I had was a sweatshirt on and I had not gotten a haircut in probably eight weeks. And I was looking really shaggy. So on the way home today, I darted into the barber shop to get a haircut and the, the lady was cutting my hair and she all of a sudden freaked out because there was a tick on my neck. So now that you're friends with all these environments and, and bird watchers and tree huggers, I want you to ask them how we go through three days of minus 40 wind chills (laughs) and all that cold weather. And there's still a tick crawling on me now that you're connected in that, in that world. I wouldn't say I'm connected, Terry. (laughs) I don't. We have a lot of good things cooking for this coming year, not only with our own personal hunting ground, with opportunities with the podcast and other businesses. I think without getting too specific, I think both of us need to just focus this year on doing what built our companies and our platform and that servant leadership to where God's going to glorify what we're doing if we put everything in perspective and try to do business the right way. And that's what's got us to this point. And I don't have plans on deviating in 2023 is my resolution. How about that? Um, well, you do a pretty good job most of the time. Uh, <laughs> compared to me, it's like I, I do fine for a while. And then they just strike a nerve. It's at a, a certain day, you know, a certain trigger point where they push the right button at the right time. And it, and I just fly off the handle at them, and I just, I just need to walk away from the computer. I think uh, social media is it, it, it's great for business, for building business. It's great for keeping in contact with friends all over the world, but it just it, it gives the real idiots an opportunity to just be jerks to people. All right. Well, before we go to our spot from Osseo, I want to make a quick announcement, and that is uh, for the last couple months, and now in 2023, uh, Onyx is actually a partner of the podcast and, uh, they came on board. It's a tool that you and I and Wes all use, uh, as we're doing consulting work. So I have a question for our listeners and those people who are listening on YouTube. If you'll, if you'll comment down below, this is maybe something a little outside of our normal podcast stuff. But if you would be interested in us bringing someone on the podcast, And we can share a screen and have them give us some tips and tricks for using Onyx for how we manage our properties. If you're interested in that, leave a comment down below. Probably do it as an additional portion at the end of the podcast so it's a resource for people. But we know so many people are using this subscription. I'm still learning to use it myself. Uh, different tools. There's just so much in there. And um, if it's something that you're interested in learning more about, leave a comment down below and Don and I might be able to make that happen on the Chase and Giants platform. For right now, let's listen to a spot from our friends at Osseo Gear. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched, pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations. Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. 
The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible. All right, Don. Well, Real World made an announcement this week that we need to share on the podcast. We had left the betting in a bag out of stock on the website, and we're not accepting orders on it, even though we were accepting orders on Switchgrass. And we just turned it on and accepted orders this week with, obviously, the Miscanthus and the Switchgrass. But I want you to go ahead and explain to everybody why we had left it as back order and uh, now just finally turned it on. Well, we was waiting for the new seed to be harvested, which was just harvested in the fall. But, uh, you know, that seed has got to be cleaned. And cleaning these native grass seeds is a lot more complicated than like cleaning soybean or soybeans or corn. And then uh, once it's cleaned, it has to be sent for a germination test. And a germination test on that native grass seed is a longer process than it is with like soybeans or corn because uh, it's just slower to germinate. So we had to get those germinations tests back from the lab before we could even start bagging because that seed tag gets sewed on when the bag is sewed shut. So that, that's what we'd been waiting on. But, uh, you know, we're, we're in the bagging process now and uh, building up inventory. So we're ready to take orders. Yeah, it'll be available to ship here within a couple of weeks. But, you know, it just goes to show we could have accepted orders and the germ would have been what it was, but we needed to be assured of what the quality was going to be before we marketed it or sold it as an open product for 23. Hopefully, we, mm-hmm. we, the, the quality and the standards that we have with the growers, I'm glad we've never been in the position where we get that final analysis and say, it's not good enough. What do we do? Uh, because of the, the the quality that we put with the grower and the seed that's being harvested that year. So hope we're glad we've never been in that position, but that's the reason it just got opened. Uh, one of the one of the common questions we've been asked this week is, can you give us some advice on when I would choose bedding in a bag versus just straight switch grass? what What were the applications for the two? Um, and when should I choose one over the other? Yeah, and to back up just a little bit, Terry, what you was saying, uh, you know, about the seed and the quality of our seed, um, we're always using fresh seed. And, you know, what happens that old seed, that old seed gets sold to people who don't care so much about quality. And that's why, you know, the we could have still had bedding in a bag in inventory. We was waiting on the fresh seed. And, you know, the reason that why somebody would pick one over the other, bedding in a bag over switchgrass, um, you know, the same real world switchgrass that's in, in the straight switchgrass bag, that same switchgrass is in the bedding in a bag, along with some specific varieties of Indian grass and big blue stem. Um, personally, if, if you're in a, if you're planting a project that is not, um, in CRP, I would go with the straight switchgrass because in the bedding in a the bag, there's those three species switchgrass is the one of the three that gets the tallest and it stands the best so if you've got the opportunity you might as well use it alone um but with crp they almost never allow you to have a monoculture or one species they want a a mix or a blend 
and that's where the bedding in the bag comes in and really shines um, because you, you know like let's just take the indian grass for example there's probably 15 20 different varieties of indian grass and we've tested those all side by side by side and we've determined the the specific variety of indian grass that stands the best out of all of them and that's what we're really looking for because a lot of those native grass fields <coughs> they will uh they get snow on them they'll fall over and then they'll stay over for the rest of the winter and it just looks like a carpet of tall grass that's been laid flat won't hardly hide a rabbit let alone a deer um, so the varieties in the bedding in the bag are very specific and, and something else that we do is we can mix custom crp blends um, a lot of um, you know landowners will have specific blends that their county office is requiring them to plant well, we can mix those blends for them, no matter what's in it. And if it has big blue stem Indian grass or switchgrass in that blend, we can use the very same varieties we use in our bedding in a bag in that custom CRP mix if they um, will request that. The thing of it is, those varieties are generally a little bit more expensive because if you would price that same seed mix somewhere else, uh, the other place would probably just quote you the cheapest Indian grass they could find, the cheapest big blue stem, the cheapest switch grass, if those three were in the mix. And we're not, we're not quoting you the cheapest, we're quoting you the best. So that's the big difference there. So a couple questions off of that. Number one, uh, from a planting standpoint, um, is frost seeding still the preferred method for for both of the bedding in a bag and the switchgrass? You know, it I, it was just two or three years ago I was recommending frost seeding, and it still it, it still works and it'll work very well a lot of times. But in recent in the last couple of years, I've kind of changed my mind on that, and I prefer to drill it in later in the spring. And here's the reason why that those native grasses, they need soil temperatures that are about 60 to 65 degrees to germinate. And you, you throw that seed out there to frost seed, it, it may lay out there for two months or, or longer before that soil temperature gets up to where it's gonna germinate. Well, there's a lot of weed seeds that'll germinate at a much lower temperature. And, and so what happens is those weeds germinate first, that switchgrass seed or that bedding in a bag seed is still laying there not warm enough for it to germinate and those weeds get a big jump on it and then when that native grass does germinate it's competing with weeds that are a foot tall or so and it's really at a, a huge disadvantage um, so what i've started doing in the last couple of years and it's worked fantastic is that i'll wait for the soil temperatures to warm up to 60 65 degrees and then I will go out and I will, I'll just let the weeds go until it gets to 60, 65 degrees. And then I will go out and I will spray that field or that the plot I'm going to plant um, with glyphosate to kill those weeds. And if it's switchgrass, you know, I'll use a uh, simazine or atrazine as a residual herbicide at the same time. And I will spray that, that plot. Then I will immediately come in and no-till um, the, the seed onto that plot and so the the green weeds that are there they will start to die as they're dying that switchgrass or bedding in a bag is starting to germinate and come on 
and that that allows that seed to come on and germinate without any competition from the weeds and uh instead of that seed laying there for a couple months before it germinates it's almost instant and i've had instances where with switchgrass the i, I drilled it with the uh genesis drill and within 14 days you could look right down the rows where that drill was and, and you could see the switchgrass coming up um, that just don't happen when you frost seed so that's why i've personally got away from frost seeding now does the success of that germination later in the year depend on you stratifying that seed in a freezer on and off or is that just a, a extra step we can go to ensure better germ so if you look at the uh the the seed tag on switchgrass it's going to have a germination rate and then it's going to have hard seed and so the germination rate may say 80 percent but then it says you know 15 percent hard seed so what's going to happen is you're going to get a germination rate if you don't stratify at all you're going to get germination rate of 80 percent stratification will help soften the, co the seed coat on that hard seed which would bump your germination up to 94 percent if it was 14 percent hard seed so that's something a little bit different about a switchgrass seed tag than a lot of other seeds is you got to take that hard seed into consideration when they do the germination test you know they'll count how many seeds germinated but then there'll be the seeds that did not germinate. They will look at each one of them and see what percentage of those were viable seeds that just did not germinate yet. Because um, the coating was still not broken down. Right. So if you will put that seed in the freezer, in the freezing and thawing, that, that cycle of freezing and thawing is what cracks that seed coating. So... Um, what you want to do is put that seed in the freezer for about a week and then take it out for about a week and then put it in for about a week and take it out for about a week. And it doesn't have to be exact. It could be 10 days or two weeks or whatever, but it's that continual thawing and freezing that helps break down that seed coating and will allow you to have a higher germination rate. Now, if you don't do that, that hard seed is there in the ground and some of it will germinate the following spring. So, just a you know a little bit of advice there to help boost those germination rates is that that freezing and thawing in your freezer now you mentioned that was for switchgrass does the big blue stem and the indian grass and the bedding in a bag work the same way or do you have to separate those well it's not as critical for those um they, they, those are fluffy seeds they're not a, a small round hard seed so that stratification with those is is not near as critical so does it hurt it to put those in the freezer it's not going to hurt it. No. Yeah. Because but, those are, when we ship those, those are in different bags inside of a bag. Right. So, and then while we're talking about that, you might as well tee up the different size and one's fluffy, one's hard seed. Uh, that's one mm -hmm. of the, one of the reasons you recommend switchgrass is because it's actually easier to plant. You don't have to deal with the different types of seeds. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the Indian grass and the big blue stem, which are in the bedding in a bag, they're a real fluffy seed. And they just won't flow through like a broadcast cedar. They just lodge up, you know, and they just don't flow through that that uh, chute or the, the tube that the seed would go down. Um, you can mix it with something like pelletized lime, but uh, to be honest, you got to use a lot of pelletized lime to do it, uh, like hundreds of pounds per acre. 
um, I know with a lot of big CRP projects um, that I've worked with clients on in, in past years, we've just taken the seed to a local fertilizer um, company and had them spread like had them mix the seed with pelletized lime and we're spreading that lime at like 500 pounds per acre and that 500 pounds per acre might only have five pounds of native grass seed mixed in with it um it, it does a pretty good job that way you get a pretty even coverage that way um but you know that's about the only way to get that fluffy seed to flow through most planters gotcha now good tips there um, a lot of people that are, that are diving into the native grasses don't have a lot of experience, uh, will point you to the real world site. If you go into the product, there's links that go off of there from blogs that you wrote years ago for not only the stratification, the planning instructions, and also herbicides that are applicable to those products. So those are all resources that you have at your disposal. Um, we did also announce that the 2023 land management guide is now available. You worked on that all fall. Our good friend Kyle Harmon, we mentioned him last week. One of the bucks that his, the first buck he shot of this year is on the front cover. Um, obviously, you know, tickled to death for Kyle, but also the we're we're glad of the relationship we've had with Team Radical for many years. But uh, talk a little bit about the resources that are in this product. It's available on the Real World website. It is a free publication. You just have to pay for shipping or we include it in any order that you uh, buy from Real World. So talk a little bit about what that uh, book gives someone. Uh, this is our third edition that we've made. Yeah, um, so this year uh, we've introduced uh, at least one new product. For, no, two new products um for this coming year um so you'll get uh, a first-hand look at those in that new land management guide we got a section on herbicides um like on our minerals we got uh we detail every nutrient in our mineral like 20 some nutrients and what each one does uh, for the deer what its purpose is um in, in the deer system um boy what else we got in there terry we got uh, i think it's 32 pages if I'm not mistaken, right? 32 pages. Yeah. Is that what you produced? Uh, and I got one right here, right behind me. Um, oh, look, you're going to make Kyle famous. Oh, look, there he is. There you go, Kyle. <laughs> um, Infamous, but, uh, we should say. Yeah, we got, I know there's an, an article in there on soil builders, um, you know, building up your soil. Um, our new soil charge is in there. Um, dealing with browse pressure on soybean plots. That's something that we probably need to talk about in an upcoming episode. Um, something new that uh, I kind of ran into last year, um, doing some experiments and some, some things we need to share. Uh, there's the cover crops and soil builders, herbicides, um, our new Dixie Dozen. There you go, folks. First look at the Dixie Dozen. Uh, that's our Southern blend cousin to the to the Deadly Dozen. Um, Turkey hunters are going to love that product. Yep. Uh, an article in here on screening and, and bedding grass fields. Um, you didn't offend anybody in that article, did you? I'm sure I did. It's... Uh, <laughs> The thing of it is, is, it's not on social media, so it'll be a lot harder for them to pull my chain and get me fired up. So, um, 
I probably won't have to deal with too much fallout from from that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, check that out. But the the thing that people don't understand, uh, they might go in and buy a bag of clover to frost seed, and they add the land management guide because they're not reading it. If you buy something from us, we're throwing that land management guide in with the book. And also, if I'm not mistaken, Don, the the is it the early spring issue of North American Whitetail and the Busy Beaver? All of those people are getting a copy of this with those publications also. Right. The, the spring uh, issue of North American Whitetail is a land management issue. And uh, this spring's issue will have a real world land management guide in with it. And the Busy Beaver that is coming out about the 1st of February, um, it will have a a land management guide net busy beaver extreme i should say there's there's multiple versions of that publication so uh yeah if you, if you get one of those publications you won't have to buy one from real world or, or buy a product from real world you'll get one so we just mentioned the busy beaver publication so we got all of our amish and mennonite customer or listeners that are like oh that's really cool and then all of our other listeners are going what's the busy beaver um that yeah. publication is an amish publication that a lot of our listeners listen to and uh so we we have worked with those folks for many years and appreciate what they do they've been good to us not only with real world but also lester's feet so uh, if right. anybody from the busy beaver is listening thank you for helping us out over the years um, it's a, it's a great tool that we can get uh, documentation and contact with our Amish and Mennonite people out in the, out in the, um, the country. So that's all I got this, this week. Um, let's, we say we move on, try to get some of these questions knocked out. Yeah, we got several questions. First three are about Miscanthus, I think. So I changed, no, they're not. Cause I changed the order. Should I stop and look oh. at the order real quick? Nah, it doesn't matter. We'll get them. There is three questions about Miscanthus. They may be scattered through there, but. All right. The first one is anyway. Now, the first one comes from uh, Cade McDowell from La Harp, Illinois. He says, hello, Don, big fan of your podcast. My question for today is about your Miscanthus grass. I'm wanting to use it around a food plot as a plot screen. I'll be using herbicides and fertilizer in the plot. Do I need to stay away from the miscanthus grass with herbicides and fertilizers? How will that affect the miscanthus grass? Also curious what kind of maintenance comes with miscanthus. Does it need to be burned or mowed off every year or every so often to remove previous growth? Thanks for the advice. God bless. Um, well, Kate, the, uh, the herbicide and the fertilizer, the herbicide will absolutely harm your miscanthus. Uh, miscanthus is really very easy to kill. In fact, I sprayed some last year on my farm uh, with just glyphosate or Roundup, and it just hammered it. I mean, it's it's deader than a hammer or deader, deader than a nail. So it's it's really easy to kill. You want to make sure you don't you know get overdrift onto that miscanthus. The fertilizer won't hurt it at all. It'll just make it grow better, if anything. So uh, that's not an issue whatsoever. But uh, as far as maintenance. To be honest, you really don't have to do anything to maintain it. It'll come back every year, but you'll start getting, you know, other woody vegetation and weeds and stuff growing up there in it. If you burn it, you'll burn up that, that woody vegetation and you'll get rid of all the old thatch. And I try to burn mine about every two to three years and uh, in, in the early spring. 
but other than that, uh, there's not much maintenance to it whatsoever. So when we're talking about spraying, give us some advice. Say we, we're using it as a plot screen. Is it just a matter of making sure that if we're using a boomless sprayer that sprays out a long way, we just give ourselves a big buffer with the right wind so it's not drifting or misting over onto those leaves, especially when it's young. We, we definitely don't want yeah. to do it when it's young. Yeah, when it's young is when it's really susceptible. Um, so, yeah, give yourself plenty of uh, uh, buffer and then uh, watch the wind direction as well because that wind can really carry that spray. Yeah, especially with, you know, I have one of those real wide. I think you bought one also for your side-by-side. Um, yep. And I upgraded the pump on mine to a bigger pump. So it really chucks it out, that boomless sprayer. But when it does that, it missed really bad. You know, it gets those little droplets. And um, if you're using a boom sprayer where it's spraying straight down, I think you could probably get a little bit tighter to it, especially if you dropped it lower. So mm -hmm. you can do it. Speaking about the fertilizer, if you want me to edit this part out of the podcast, I'll be happy to. But one of the commercial applications for miscanthus grass is down in the southeast or along the east coast where they get hit with hurricanes. They actually put these around big commercial hog farms. So I don't know if all of your new mm -hmm. environmental friends are hammering on the hog farms as much as they are us. But the reason for that, when these hurricanes come in and drop six feet of water in a short period of time, it floods out all the manure pits and these big corporate, I mean, we're talking huge commercial hog barns and all of that manure water runs out onto the landscape. One of the, one of the uses of this product is they planted a lot around these barns so that it sucks back up that manure and not especially nitrogen. This uh, mm -hmm. giant miscanthus loves nitrogen. It's it's in the corn family, so one of yeah. So I don't think you have to worry about you know put accidentally getting fertilizer over on it. It's going to soak it in and and use it just like corn would. Right, no right. doubt about it. Okay, is that okay to leave that in there? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm fine with it. Our environmental friends may not be, but I don't think anything I do makes them happy. So. Do you, I don't think they're actually listening to the, the podcast, Don. <laughs> I don't bet on it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to put question two up. I think I accidentally got them out of order. So this one I don't think is about Miscanthus. This one comes from Ryan Turner from Smithville, Missouri. It says, hi, Don and Terry. Thanks for all the great info. Really appreciate it. Don, what a difference a year makes. The changes we implemented following your visit last spring have made a big impact on the farms and I only expect things to get better as time goes and we get more of the plan put in place. My question is, does hunting food during brutal winter weather conditions trump wind direction? The big food plot we put in had two acres of real world soybeans and two acres of Nutri-Crave corn left standing when the northwest winds blew in sub-zero temperatures and two to three inches of snow last week. The stand sites we set up for that food plot, though, are only are for southerly winds, southeast or southwest. With a northwest wind, my scent would have would not have been blowing into the food plot, but would have been blowing into a portion of the sanctuary bedding area. I would have been in a box blind. There is no sign of southerly winds next five days. There is still a shooter buck on the farm, and the season ends this week. 
would you have went? Well, you know, Ryan, I talk about discipline a lot, discipline, discipline, discipline. And unfortunately, I, I see this on different properties all the time that, you know, a lot of times I go to a, a property and the landowners, the clients just insistent that we have a stand for every wind direction. He wants to hunt every wind direction. And sometimes that's just not possible. And, you know, even on my here on my home farm, it it did not set up really good for south winds. And years ago I had to had to create some south wind stands um, or situations that, that where I could put stands and have a reasonably good chance of, of shooting a buck. Um, I would never give up the wind. It, it would take a really special situation. If you're going to give up the wind, you need to be in any closed blind with the window shut. And, uh, sometimes you can get away with it that way. Um, unfortunately I don't have a better answer. Um, the wind, the way your farm, I know exactly where you're talking about and, the way your farm laid out, you know, it just, it, it was not going to be good um, for the winds you've been getting. And uh, typically when those, those cold weather systems blow through, you know, after they blow through that wind will switch back to the South fairly quick and, and you could have been hunting, but uh, apparently this one, the wind stayed uh, Northwest for, for a period of time and you were not able to. Buyafarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. Welcome to this week's Biofarm segment. I have Don Bailey back on the show tonight to talk about an auction coming up in February in Effingham County. Don, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, let's hear about this property. Yeah, thank you, Terry. It's uh, 154 acres. Uh, been in the same family for many, many, many years. I, I think this is 60 or 70. Uh, it's 154 acres. We're going to offer it in four tracks, a 34-acre track and then three 40-acre tracks or a multi-par. Uh, pictures on the website show, show it in detail. I'm going to add some uh, aerial photos and some land pictures when the when the weather allows it yeah it hasn't uh, hasn't been too friendly for picture taking from the sky has it no no it, <laughs> it's been it's been pretty pretty nasty yep so uh, one, 154 acres and it'll be all in one or multiple tracks uh, the smallest one being 34 acres and then three different tracks being 40 so talk a little bit about how this is going to work yes we're going to be a multi-par if they do sell in separate tracks we are going to survey and clear a 50-foot easement east to west across the top of each track. So it will be a 50-foot easement cleared. The maintenance and the road building will be up to the buyers, but uh, we will have legal access, per se, all the way from the east to the west if it sells in separate tracks. If it sells altogether, of course, that's not going to be needed. Sure. So for the people listening on the podcast uh, audio platforms, just envision a big rectangle block. And the, the nice part about I'm looking at the aerial right now is each track has some tillable on it. Each track has some woods on it, but the road frontage is on the east side or the right side of the picture. So what you're saying is, is if the tracks get divided up with different landowners, 
across the north side there'll be an easement to allow the people to get access from the road to the tracks to the left of the picture or the west is that right yes and that'll be that'll be legal and documented and surveyed in Okay. If, if need be. Let's talk a little bit about the land itself. Uh, I mentioned you told me that each property has at least some tillable on it, some a little bit more, some a little bit less. We'll talk a little bit about other stuff. Is there timber value on this? What's there? Yes, there's some big timber, uh, older timber, big timber. I, I plan to possibly get a, a timber evaluation, but I don't know if the time frame will allow me to. Uh, I, I just simply refuse to put a value on it in my mind because right. <laughs> I, I, I look at one woods and I'm just not a timber person. So sure. I, I, I stay away from that. But if someone is interested in it, they definitely need to come and look at it right. and, and get their own opinion. Uh, it has some oil wells on it. The seller is conveying everything he's got as far as royalty, but he doesn't believe he has anything. You're buying the surface rights and then, of course, any new production. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, there's all these roads throughout it to where they go and check their wells. And it's interesting, Terry. I, I found that, well, there's going to be vehicles traveling that. Uh, but I found that that's almost an advantage. You've got a good place to walk. And the deer are, and wildlife, turkey, uh, the first thing in the middle of the road and they see a vehicle, they almost stop and you have to honk your horn at them. They're, they're real familiar with traffic. If sure. And it's not like people are in there every day as far as an intrusion thing. This is only a maintenance thing where they're in there. So very little uh, traffic when it does happen. But you're right. There's already almost a road system uh, established there. So you're not you know, taking just a fresh cut of block timber and trying to navigate it for the first time. So. Yeah, and this this could be anything from a home site to just a recreational property or a hunt club or anything coming in, depending on how you would buy the different tracks. So let's talk a little bit about the time frame. When does the bidding open and close on this one? And is there any ways that people can see the property in person that are scheduled? Uh, the bidding opens uh, Thursday. Oh, no, excuse me. The bidding opens the 2nd of February and closes February the 16th. Uh at 8 p.m. Central, I believe, right? Yeah, quits at 8 p.m. Central. All right, so bidding opens February 2nd, closes the 16th of February at 8 p.m. Now, if somebody wants to look at it, is it by appointment only, or is there an open house or anything for it? I probably won't have an open house, uh, but it's available at any time to call me, whatever works for you. Uh, you know, I don't live that far from it. Mm-hmm. So, so any anybody wants to look at it, we can accommodate almost anything, Terry. Gotcha. So, Effingham County, um, um, Illinois. So, right outside, I guess, south of Mason would be the the best uh, kind of reference on a map. Uh, but yep. February second to February sixteenth, Buy Farm has several different auctions closing closing in February. So make sure you're watching the buyfarm.com website or contacting one of the agents to uh, learn more about each of these properties. Um, I like the looks of this because there's timber, there's tillable, there's road systems. Uh, it could really make a, a nice property for someone, no matter what their objectives were. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. Yes, and uh, Terry, it's just really important that, that if anybody's got any questions or, or ideas, I, I sure want them to contact us. All right. uh, to con- contact me, it's 
618-919-1031. You can call or text or email me at dbailey at biofarm.com. All right. Well, Don, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for talking about this property in Effingham County. Please go out and follow uh, biofarm.com on their website and social media platforms. We look forward to having you next week, sir. Thank you, Terry, and have a good evening. You too. Uh, The next one comes from Eric Wolfram from Cincinnati, Ohio. Another consulting client, by the way. Um, He says, Don, we all know that the giant Muscanthus you sell is a variety that doesn't produce viable seed. It only spreads very slowly as it's a clumping variety, meaning the rhizomes grow very close to the originals. My question is, could giant Muscanthus become like the Bradford calorie pear and end up becoming invasive? Um, I would say, Eric, the odds of that happening are almost zero. Um, Giant Muscanthus, uh, just our supplier alone, um, the grower we're getting it from has been in business for 30 years. They've been growing it in the United States for 30 years, and they have absolutely no history, not a single incident of this stuff coming even a, becoming even a little bit invasive. I've had it on my farm for 10 years and there is not a single stalk of this stuff growing anywhere that I didn't plant there. Um, it, it spreads by the rhizome, but even it, there, there's a limit to how far it's going to spread. You plant one rhizome and it's going to spread into a clump. that's maybe 18 inches, maybe 24 at the most. And that clump is going to be it. It just doesn't keep going four to six inches a year forever. Once it gets out to about 18, 24 inch clump, that's it. That's as big as it's going to get. Um, And then the other thing I mentioned it earlier and the other question is if it does, if it would happen to be someplace that you want to terminate it, well, you just spray it with Roundup. It's very easy to control. I mean, um, We've got, in, in my opinion, we've got a lot of native plants that are more aggressive than giant Muscanthus as far as spreading, and countless, countless of them too. So it's just not an issue that you're going to have to to deal with. All right. So while you're talking here, I'm going to share my screen and actually play a video. Unfortunately, the folks that are listening on the audio platforms are not going to be able to see this. This is unproduced drone footage from when we all flew down into the Carolinas and you can talk about uh, the shape of these things and what we're looking at here. We're not gonna talk about the specifics of this uh, test plot and the varieties, but what are we looking at there? Cause there's a bunch of squares and rectangles. What what is that? Those are all different varieties of Miscanthus. So, you know, we didn't just decide we're gonna sell Miscanthus and go out and find some Miscanthus to sell. We did our homework. Terry and Wes and I actually jumped on an airplane and we flew to North Carolina to look at this university test plot of Miscanthus. Not where, a corporation, been, not a corporation, not somebody. This was this was a university's test plot. Yeah, it's where all the environmental wackos come from anyway. So we went right to the, the environmental wackos um, headquarters and each one of these varieties is a different variety and there has been no cross pollination or anything like that. These things are not spreading whatsoever. Um, and we also went to a second university, um, university of Illinois, where there's been a lot of research done with Muscanthus. So we did all this before we ever 
brought it to market. We did our, our homework. There's the last thing we would be doing is promoting a, an invasive plant. And I think what's really important here is I think the big misconception here is I think a lot of people see Phragmites and they think it's Miscanthus. Phragmites is invasive. It's a totally different plant. It's not even the same family, you know. It do a if you if you're really interested in this, do a internet search for Phragmites and then do one for giant Miscanthus. And they look very similar. They're both very tall. They look similar, but they're totally different plants. And, and I think people have seen Phragmites get out of control and they think that's what we're selling. It's that's not it whatsoever. And I think that's the big confusion. I think that's why people get so fired up because they have seen Phragmites. And, you know, to be, to be honest, the people that are worried about it spreading, they have the best interest of the ecosystem at heart. They're just a little bit misled. And not only are they misled, they're so stinking hard-headed, they, they can't accept that maybe they're wrong. Yep. So for the people listening right now, what's up on the screen that Don was talking about, there's three vehicles where this, this drone is way up in the air looking down. And I counted them one day. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 different blocks of different shapes of patches of, of giant miscanthus. Now, the, the real reason we went to this location was to pick out which variety that we really liked because we wanted it really tall and really bushy. We wanted a lot of leaves up and down the stalk versus just, you know, like a, t a mini telephone pole. So this mm -hmm. was a this was a good site for us to go see that in the green leaf state how thick and bushy because when we only plant three rows of this we want it to still be a, a, a break the line of sight but it's also a good visual because literally the strips to the you can actually see the rows where this stuff was planted it's still inside right. the rows mm -hmm. so. We'll be posting some more of this for educational reasons up on our social media page in the near future and roll with the punches as we go. So I just thought it would be a good opportunity for the people watching on YouTube to to see that. I'm going to put up the fourth question for us right now. Okay, the next one comes from John Ritchie from Vandalia, Michigan. Uh, he says, hi, Don and Terry. I love the podcast. I have a question on integrating your miscanthus into switchgrass bedding areas for added structure. With the snow we've had, it's about laid my switchgrass down flat. Aside from screening, how much miscanthus do you like to add into switchgrass stands? Do you plant it in rows, thick patches, or just scattered throughout? And thinking of scattering out some red cedars and box elder trees. This is a 12-acre ag field that I have converted and it's not a solid switchgrass. I left lots of pockets throughout the switchgrass for natural growth to take place. Hope this question relates to a lot of other guys trying to develop their own piece of paradise. Uh, I would love your input. Thanks and God bless. Keep melting the snowflakes. Well, John, we had a real bonfire going this weekend and the snowflakes were melting right and left. Um, to answer your question though, you know, I was, uh, I've been promoting uh, within a switchgrass field, planting, you know, like a giant X with miscanthus out in the middle there, or, uh, you know, even an L shape or, or just random rows here and there. But uh, a friend of mine at, at 
go to church with him, John Jess came up with a great idea and shared it with me. And I, I tried it on my place last year and I really like, like the idea. And so what we're doing now is on a new switchgrass planting, we, we go in before we ever drill the switchgrass and with a tree seedling planter that's pulled behind a tractor. Um, that's what we plant the miscanthus with. So typically if you're making a row, you're going to drop a rhizome about every 18 inches apart. Um, but what we're doing, and then you want your rows only spaced about 18 inches to two feet apart. And three of those rows makes a good screen. But what we're doing out in the, the heart of these switchgrass fields now is taking that tree planter and we're making a row and then, but we're only dropping in a rhizome about every 10 to 20 feet, just, just real random, drop one in now, wait a while, drop another one in. Um, and then we'll make another row 10 to 12 feet from the last row and just go back and forth making rows every 10 to 12 feet across that field, just randomly dropping in a rhizome here and there. Well, as I just explained with the last question, each one of those rhizomes is going to make a clump that's about 18 inches to 24 inches across. And so you're going to have all these clumps of giant miscanthus within your switchgrass field. And no doubt that deer are going to relate to that structure and they're going to bed right up against those clumps of switchgrass. Um, but it'll also, or clumps of miscanthus, but it'll also help hold up that switchgrass because that miscanthus has got stalks like bamboo and it's twice as tall as the switchgrass is. So that's an, a great way to do it. Now, one issue comes along is what if you've already got a switchgrass field that's established and you want to do this? That's the situation I had on my farm last year. And what I did was I went in there and I burned it in the spring. So you, you mentioned you got your switchgrasses laying flat. And if it's real world switchgrass, if that snow melts, it, it'll pop back up. I've had mine knocked flat from really wet snows and the snow melts and it pops right back up and you, you got the cover that you had before. But, uh, you know, no matter what, uh, just burn it next spring, get rid of all that thatch. And then when that miscanthus or when that switchgrass starts to green up, if you go in there with like an ATV sprayer and use Roundup and Select. Select is a grass herbicide. We, we spray it on clover to kill grass and clover or clethodim. Um, you know, mix those two and that, that will really kill that grass. And you'll just spray a strip. It's only about three or four foot wide. And then you come in with your... Uh, your tree planter and, and you put them miscanthus rhizomes in there random. But what will happen is you will think that you've just toasted your switchgrass. You'll think that you've killed it. And I'm telling you, it's, it's way harder to kill switchgrass than it is miscanthus. And what will happen is that switchgrass will come back from those roots and uh, it, it, but it'll do it at the same time that those miscanthus rhizomes are starting to sprout and that's all coming on at once. It just cuts down on competition for that rhizome to, to get established. Um, but, you know, I'd never thought about it till now. I've had way, way harder time killing switchgrass than I ever did miscanthus. So, uh, you know, spraying, it's not going to totally kill it. It's just going to set it back for a couple months. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's dive into another comment he made in this question and that's him wanting to plant cedars and box elders in it. And after the two properties that I consulted on this last week, um, that would be the last thing that I would ever want to. I had a, I have a client that has lost a whole river bottom of 15 acres due to box elders down in this thing that it, it's, it's thicker than I'm sure that 
probably five years ago, it was really good because the trees were small. Now the trees are too big and there's no growth mm. underneath of it. It's a canopy. And I, we spent an hour down there today trying to figure out what to do, how to hunt it. Because, you know, in hill country, if you got a flat, flat piece of land, you want to use it. And unfortunately, this has been taken over by, I wish, I wish our invasive friends would, would work just as hard on this. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen box elder um, saplings just take over an area and they're so stinking thick, you can't hardly walk through them. I don't know why anybody would ever plant a box elder personally. Um, yeah, maybe the deer browse on them to some degree, but there's a whole lot of better things you could plant for a deer than a box elder. The, the big thing about planting those trees within your native grass is that that's going to prevent you from burning that grass or, or if you do burn it, you're going to lose your trees. It's a, it's a experiment I tried one time. And when I did it, I was using big burlap trees. I did it when I owned my tree nursery and, you know, I would uh, be cleaning out a field of trees. We dug most of them and sold them off and there'd still be an odd tree here and there. I would use my tree spade and I would dig those remaining trees out and I would stick them out in my switchgrass and in clusters. And, and I'm, I'm talking trees, you know, three inch diameter trunks and 15 feet tall, but the fire would just kill them anyway. So if they're going to kill them, a cedar, I know a, a fire is just going to toast them cedars. And then when you go sticking miscanthus in there, well, you talk about a fire. When that miscanthus catches fire, you got a hot fire that with flames that are 40, 50 feet in the air. Um, I would forget about the whole, the tree part of the, uh, of the equation. If I was going to no do trees, that, I'd do no that No food myself. inside, no trees yep. and no food inside of switchgrass. Right. So, so you mentioned the new philosophy that you, or the new idea you have about scattering out these hills of miscanthus, and that's just to provide a lot of buck hotel rooms versus uh, a perimeter. But you have put strips of miscanthus in to funnel deer out of a specific area of the switchgrass where they'll use it as an edge. So I think mm -hmm. that's also another application. Just touch on that before we move to the next section, because all you've touched on is structure for bedding but miscanthus can also bring deer out of switchgrass in specific areas before we move on. Yeah. And in fact, I'm going to be doing this on uh, the new 40 acre property and videoing it for the uh, whitetail master Academy, but you can take a single row of miscanthus. Uh, well, not, not just a single row, but like a, a strip of miscanthus, two or three rows, like you was going to plant for a break. And you can start like on the edge of your, your, switchgrass field where you want those deer to exit say next to a specific tree where you're going to have your stand just take a row and run it out into the heart of that field and what will happen is those deer as they get up from their beds they will follow that structure or that tall miscanthus they will follow it right out to the edge of the field and they'll end up popping out right in front of your stand and i've got a place on the, the new 40 where that's going to happen where I'm going to put a row right out to the middle of the field. And then I'm going to direct them deer right to where my stand's going to be. Members of the Whitetail Master Academy are going to get to see this from a bird's eye view. Steve Shields will get the drone out and we'll film all that and show how it works. Yeah. So there's two different ways of using it. 
Hey, Spinks from Quiet Cat here in our virtual showroom space where you can connect with a product expert and learn all about our bikes, our accessories, and what makes Quiet Cat the leader in off-road electric bikes. Schedule a live session today by clicking in the link below or going to quietcat.com slash meet. The next one comes from Kaysen Corbin from Plano, Illinois. He says, Don and Terry, thanks for doing a great podcast. It keeps me entertained each week. Previously said you were bombarded with questions and a lot of them were repeats and you were looking for new off topic subject. So here's one that that's both off the wall and serious. I recently shot a deer with a third main beam and was told that extra beam grew from a broken off piece of another buck's rack almost like a seed if that's true would a piece broken off bro, broken off rack in a deer's rear rear end grow a beam just curious if you have any history with these types of things thanks Kason. um Kason, no that that's that's absolutely another fallacy that somebody dreamed up um that extra main beam typically is a deer has been injured as he shed his antler like the year or two before you know, I've seen it where, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen it where at the base of that shed antler, there's a piece of skull that, that sometimes comes off with that antler. And that can cause, you know, that, that pedicle injury to uh, cause that third beam. It's got absolutely nothing to do with another deer breaking his antler off in another buck. So uh, probably some environmentalist came up with uh, that idea, but it's, it's, a, it's false. It doesn't work that way. Okay. I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know that we can for sure say every situation where we see a jacked up rack is for a specific reason, but, um, definitely that break in the skull plate can cause some, uh, funky stuff the following year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, next one comes from Tim Heinrich from Sioux Center, Iowa says, Hey guys. We are enjoying the podcast and spreading the word to others. Much can be learned. Thank you. So far, the weather across the Midwest has been significantly colder than normal, and we could be in for a long and wet winter. Would you recommend starting a feed feeding program now, protein pellets, corn, alfalfa bales, hay, etc., while the deer are relatively healthy, or suggest waiting until mid to late winter? Legal states only, of course. Would you spread out these sites due to predation risk or focus on a central site in the middle of the property is it too late to put some woody brows on the ground via hinge cuts and pruning is there anything else we can do to help the deer this time of year let us know thank you for your time tim um well tim supplemental feeding i'd be doing it if it was legal in my state i'd be doing it every day it was legal i know some states you can do it year round others you can only do it outside of hunting season um, I, I don't think it, uh, if it's legal in your state, you, you should be doing it as soon as you can, um, you know, get them deer used to it and get them to, to find in the feeders and everything. Um, as far as where to locate them, you need to locate them where you can access them and fill them with doing as least amount of disturbance to your property as possible. 
you don't want to go into the middle of the property in the heart of the bedding area or whatever and do it and chase all the deer out when you do it it'd be way better on the edge where you're just you know you've got really easy access to come in and do it um i i would do multiple feeders um you know a feeder is only going to accommodate so many deer at one time uh the deer are going to want to congregate so um give them multiple feeders um how many you know that depends on your property and how many deer you got staying there um what was the other question dropping trees for uh, for browse yep you can do that right now all through the winter um i know a lot of times when i'm doing my habitat work uh, i'm typically doing it in, in late winter like february and march because i don't want to get in there and disturb the deer um, but if we get good weather at the end of february first of march i'll be in there and a lot of times you know i've dropped trees and come back the next day and find that the the ends of the branches have already been uh, browsed off by the deer see the deer tracks in the mud around the trees and that so yeah they'll instantly start you know browsing on that if you start dropping trees another property that i was on yesterday uh he had already started uh cutting a lot of the big mature cedar trees you know the ones that are 10 12 feet up before you even start seeing anything green you know those trees don't do anything mm -hmm. for you at that point and he had gone on on a south or southwest facing hillside and just i mean he torched this hillside i mean it looked phenomenal it looked like a bomb had gone off mm -hmm. the only thing that was still left there was his hardwoods and it was a lot of cedar trees and we we walked down in there and you would not believe with this last cold front how many deer beds were up in up against those cedars that had just dropped so yep. um you know I'm, I'm a big believer i love cedars if you can keep a handle on them and once the that greenery starts getting away from the ground in other words you start getting uh, the dead branches down by the ground and it starts getting up about a foot all you're doing is preventing other stuff from growing you whack that thing off and let another one grow in its place but i love cedars but not when they get huge and tall and and have no benefit underneath of them but when they get that big they can be benefit laying on the ground so just dropping them where mm -hmm. they're at and creating good habitats are obviously a very good way to to help keep them warm all right well i think that's it that's the last question we burned through those wow. pretty quick well i tried to not waste any time knowing we had a few so all right so it's uh it's holiday weekend i'm gonna have to i'm gonna do uh probably two more consulting visits this week and then i'm heading to cleveland and then coming home for more consulting next weekend and then the following weekend is the ata show so you're not gonna attend i'm gonna go up there and uh, I want to see one specific person, a friend of mine that's going to be in town from a long way away, and it's only an hour, hour and a half away, so I'm going to run up and visit him. And then the following week, I get to run out to Las Vegas with all the real weirdos to visit the SHOT Show. So it's going to be a bunch of conservatives invading weirdo land of Las Vegas. That should be interesting. <laughs> well, it's probably uh, just a good thing for me to stay home from those kind of events. Uh, the older <laughs> I get, the the less tolerant I am of stupidity and because the older I get, the more stupid the world gets and the, just one crazy thing after another. And I had, th those deer shows are a dying thing anyway, from what I'm seeing. Um, yep. I, I mean, I know there's a lot of the companies that used to go to the ATA show don't even go anymore. And 
I, I know when real world went, I think we went what three or four different years and it was very expensive and not worth it for what we gained. Um, there, there's a whole lot better ways that you can spend your advertising dollar and make a, get a bigger bang for your buck. So, uh, if I could never go to another ATA show, it won't bother me one bit. Yep. So, but, uh, if you're going to be at it, give me a buzz, uh, leave me a message and we'll say hi while we're up there. But yeah, busy weeks ahead. This is our full kick of consulting season. Wes and the other two guys are on the road a lot. Um, if you want to get the, one of the team members on your property, you better tell us now because we're, everybody's about at their limit. I believe we, uh, everybody's got a couple openings. They might be able to squeak in depending on location. So make sure you get with us. But outside of that, I don't have anything for this week. I've got another consulting visit and, uh, got to go in for a little bit of a medical test, uh, Tuesday. So hopefully that goes well and I can be back on the road about, well, I got a meeting on Wednesday by Thursday. I'm hoping to be back out and hitting the consulting trail. Yep. All right. Well, good show today. Thanks for asking, answering all those questions, and uh, we'll be back with you next week on, I guess that'll be July 7th, the next time we talk to you. January. Or January, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll be we're planting gonna... a lollipop pine at the same time. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to take a six-month break. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all might right, make everybody. some people say if we would. But... Thanks for listening. Appreciate you guys. God bless everyone. Have a great week. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.